Hello, and welcome to the Film Design Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Fiona Crombie is a BAFTA-winning and Oscar-nominated production designer, designing films such as Cruella, The Favourite, and Justin Kurzel's Macbeth. This episode is supported by Talking Point. Talking Point delivers training for the art department on feature film and TV dramas. They run a wide range of courses and sessions with leading industry professionals for practitioners of all levels, from new entrants to heads of department. For more information, go to www.talkingpointfilm.co.uk. And now back to today's episode. My name's Fiona Crombie and I'm a production designer. So um, the always important question, how did you get to where you are now? <laughs> um, well, I, I, you know, I can't discount the fact that I'm second generation film. You know, my father is a film, well, was a film director in Australia and my mother was a film executive. And so I grew up with film being talked about at the dinner table and going to, you know, like just being part of our life, going out on film sets. And so I think that's a really important thing because I knew that it existed um, as a career path. And, and also I knew of what I, I would walk around film sets and fake streets and, you know, and look at people in costumes. And I, so I, I knew that that was a thing that people did. And I also understood the artifice as well. Like I would go around and look at behind and what, you know, the fact that it was just timber. And so I was always fascinated, but also intimidated by it because it's such a machine. I remember as a kid thinking, oh my gosh, there's so many people everywhere. Um, So it took me quite a while to get to that. So I, before I became a production designer, I was actually a theater designer for 10 years in Australia. so I didn't go straight into film. I actually st- only studied theatre and I didn't really work on films until I found myself doing short films and music videos and things like that and then eventually did a feature film. Yeah. And how did you find, um, so that was with Justin Kurzel, you started to kind of make that transition with. Yeah. Um, but how did you find kind of going from uh, theatrical sets to working with him who's kind of quite like a realistic director I would say yeah yeah I mean I think for me I've always been interested in like naturalism and and like re like character essentially and I think that's probably the most the thing that's kind of defines my love of theater anyway like is the love of character and how to depict and of course theater is always abstracted anyway just by virtue of the fact that it's in a theater um and but that still my I've always loved attention to detail and so for me like working with Justin I mean Justin's a theatre person too he was a theatre designer before he became a director and so we come from we have very long history and so um we just sort of shared a language and a love of sort of a particular type of cinema and stuff like that so um yeah it was pretty natural transition I guess moving on to your most recent film Corella, which um has been BAFTA long listed I can mm. I can see congratulations <laughs> um so it's kind of again it's like 
obviously there's a big step forward and I'll talk about the other films after, but um, tell me about the process of um, research and kind of creating that kind of 70s aesthetic. Well, I, I what I have realised is that actually I have the same process for every film, you know, and so in fact I think probably it's something that I've developed over time because, like I said, I didn't study film, so I don't really... I don't know. I just have my way of doing it, which is probably the same as lots of other people's. It's probably not unique. But so for me, the actually one of my favorite parts of the whole thing is reference and research and that initial kind of dreaming phase of where you're just looking at what it what it is and then deciding what it could be and sort of like sifting through and charting a path really and that's always such a pleasure because often it's just me and I always work with Phil Clark who's my um, researcher reference artist collaborator very key person for me and he and I bounce things together and we sort of find our little journey in collaboration with the director Um, and so the thing is with Cruella even though it was you know much bigger budget like you know than anything I'd ever encountered and certainly a huge number of sets um it's just the same process it's like you have to find your foundation I always say that for me the backbone of the film is reference and research like as long as I found the essentials I can then tease it out if that makes sense yeah when you're working with a researcher, could you just tell me a bit more about that process? Like, um, so the directors come to you with a brief and mm. do you then kind of do a kind of a early mood board yourself or do you just go straight to the researcher? How does that, how does that process work? Often what will happen is sometimes I'll do a bit of digging around myself um, and then I'll go to Phil and I'll have had initial, always have initial response you know just some kind of like gut instinct I feel like it's this or this is what's interesting to me or I want I want to look at this it reminded me of this and so I'll just have a few key things that he and I will um just extrapolate on really like just pull out and you know sometimes you veer off in a direction but what I find really really interesting about the process is I almost always find a repetition of palette. I'll find a repetition of like key shapes, like things that just come up again and again. And I'm constant, I'm obviously attracted. I don't know necessarily how to, like, I couldn't say to you, oh, I'm really into burgundy. Like, but then suddenly I'll just be like, oh, wow, I'm seeing this is coming up a lot. And also what I really love is that it's a way for me to almost chart the, the visual journey of the film through reference and research. So I'll see, you know, in this particular story beat, where in this sort of thing, how does that relate to where the film moves? You know, I can, I can texturally, even though it won't end up look, looking like that, the film won't exactly look like that. It's I can texturally check where it's headed, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And where it might be repeating itself or it might not. Yeah, I, I sort of... I, a very important thing is to I literally I line the walls with the images. It's very important to me that it's done in story order, so I can see the journey of the movie as I walk around the art department. Um, but yeah, so that's what happens with Phil, and we'll spend usually we spend probably three weeks uninterrupted, just us gathering things and putting you know packages together of 
um, images for the director and then they reply and say, this is interesting, this is not so interesting, this is, feels good, you know, and then then we kind of dig deeper as we get more and more, um, yeah, direction. So Corella, for example, what were the kind of reoccurring patterns and shapes and colours that um, really came out and you found interesting? Oh, I like, you know, so, I mean, <laughs> we have to go back into my memory, which is <laughs> a little faulty. Um you know, like, so for example, with the Baroness, like I just remember her, her, the Baroness kind of workshop was very clean. It was white. Like I just remember we were looking at a lot of like house, like Dior and the fantastic archive of photography and just some of those, you know, but it was always crisp. You know, there were certain colors like green, you know, there were certain, because the photography that it was actually, um, 50s or maybe early 60s the photography so it had a particular palette that was quite different to the 70s because just the kind of camera stock I guess like there was a particular palette that we then put into that um set but yeah like I mean I just remember things like you know looking at all the um things for the lair and that that had those kind of powdery tones but that you know with brick and I don't know it just it all just <laughs> found its way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was quite a nice contrast yeah. between kind of Corella's yeah. lair and the Baroness's studio, the kind of the, the crazy yeah. kind of... Yeah. yeah. Could you talk about kind of creating a contrast and kind of comparing that to the costume? Well, you know what? Yeah, I mean, what we wanted to do was to create a contrast, but also some quiet, unconscious symmetry. So, you know, like there was a chandelier you know, like we were kind of going, yeah, maybe they're not so different, you know, like, um, and there was certainly the thing about the lair that was really important was it had to be, you know, it's basically a squat and, but it had to be a home and it had to be something that you couldn't be afraid of. Like as, you know, when we meet them, they're children and that you had to feel like this was wondrous a, a wondrous environment, not a terrifying situation, you know, for her. So we w- used quite warm colours and made, you know, kind of, you know, round, you know, the oval windows. And so there was a sort of a sense of, yeah, being kind of magical. Um, and then I guess it was just that they, I mean, what was interesting as well is that these are three young characters who grow up without adult supervision. So they can make it whatever they want to, you know, and they sort of improvise a home and they improvise a family. And we also were very strict about everything should, should have the quality of a found object. They just steal things all the time and they're finding them on the side of the road. So everything was like super eclectic and just gathered and modified and, you know, and they're obviously all creative as well in that the three of them. And so I know we just kind of tried to make it, yeah, this kind of almost like a nest, you know, like a you've gathered things and put it in your nest, as opposed to the Baroness who, you know, has she exercises complete control over everything. We figured that she would have the most incredible, like, you know, um, party planners, interior designers, you know, she would have staff. So it's whether she even chose one piece of fabric in her house, you know, it's a whole other thing. So they were quite different in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, and I love the whole kind of the magpie vibe of the, um, the three of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So Liberties is a is a really big feature in the film as well, and that's obviously a very well known brand. Like, mm. how did you go about kind of creating the underbelly of Liberties? And there's this amazing kind of one take that kind of goes through. Like, what was the process of that? I'd love to hear more. Well, so we built the Liberties ground floor and some of the exterior uh, on a stage because we just couldn't have access to Liberties. I mean, not that they were denying us access. It's just, it's impossible, <laughs> like, you know, because they're just never closed. And also we did had just had to do too much work to bring it into the period and everything. So that was never a possibility. So we built that set and then we just built a, some doors some doors at the back of the set and the camera traveled through and then we cut to stairs at a location. Um, and now I can't remember what that location was, but Oh, the Savile club. It was. And so we actually were able to use their, the underneath the Savile club. And we did a lot of work dressing and, you know, various modifications, building a little bathroom and things. And the tricky thing was that it actually only had one level but so Craig just really cleverly stitched it all together and we just redressed that same passageway and he just by turning the camera and like walking in the opposite direction, it's exactly the same <laughs> thing. It's just redressed and cleverly, like it's just clever. Yeah, but it's actually, it. yeah. And I actually, from memory, it was longer, like, but it just was too too long for the film. Like you just couldn't, it kept going. Like he did, we did quite a lot of passes of like moving through different areas, but really it's actually, it's kind of a U-shaped corridor and he just clever. Yeah. He did a great job with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess um, moving on to the favorite, which I absolutely loved. Um, I noticed that you had lots of kind of fisheye lenses that were used throughout the film and there's some kind of pretty crazy angles going on. Um, so I'd love to hear more about how you designed for such a huge scope. Well, the thing is, I mean, the great asset for us was being able to use Hatfield House and, you know, and that has amazing ceilings and it has amazing floors. And so actually the, it was more complicated. I remember in the great hall because that had (laughs) paintings on one side that you can't move. I mean, there's just no way they're worth so much money and they're incredibly delicate and so we had to build a huge wall to hide these paintings because they were not the right period and so it was a whole so so that was probably the only thing that you know was really like we had to cover something I mean there was lots of you know VFX tidy up in that you know because there's millions of like smoke alarms and things but yeah like I say the thing is that Hatfield House has allowed for seeing it so um in all in in, with such an all-encompassing eye the thing for us was that we really stripped it back I mean we just pulled up all the they had lots lots of carpets there and we just brought it back to being quite quite empty I mean I know it feels like a very plush environment and but actually there's not a lot there. Like we actually wanted a lot of empty space. I wanted to see the shiny floor and I wanted it to feel like, yeah, just that because in the references that I'd found and Phil had found with me, like there was a lot of empty space in those at that time. And so I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was exciting when, when it's exciting when you realize that, 
you're going to see everything you do. <laughs> like, it's just so nice. Yeah. Yeah, especially you're not dressing wasted space whatsoever. Like, everything no. has the potential to play, which is quite exciting. Yeah. I think it was the first day of shoot that we're in the Queen's bedroom and Yorgos and Robbie set up a shot where somebody walked in and so the camera was completely wide. You saw absolutely everything. And then it whip panned around and you saw behind. And I was just, I remember just thinking, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, good, good. Because we, I like to dress sets so that people can go anywhere anyway. It's only, it's very, very rare that I'll say we can't give you this part of this room or something. Because I just think you're setting yourself up for that will inevitably be where it has to go. Yeah. So um, so I was really happy that we saw it all. Yeah. It's also fantastic that you've, um, it's the com- complete opposite to normal where you'll have uh, DP just shooting kind of headshots. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, in the dark. <laughs> yeah. The amount of sets I've worked on where you've done these amazing kind of walls and floors and you're yeah. just seeing someone's face, it's, it's pretty yeah. demoralising. Or in a corner, you know, like yeah. they shoot, shoot in a corner like with no lighting, you know, and you're just like, eh. yeah yeah it's so true um i was just thinking about when uh i forget the names of the characters but the emma stone character just gets pushed out of a cart into all of the mud Mm. um was that um was that mud that you kind of like were you allowed to mess up the grounds or did you have to kind of like bring the mud with you or what was the how did that happen i my memory of that is that we did have to yes there was like to ram or you know is that what it's called <laughs> I'm not sure. but there was stuff like yeah. i remember them we had to yeah manipulate it so that it but we were outside of their kind of we were on their long they have a really super long kind of natural driveway and we were out there so it wasn't um like it wasn't going to ruin anything particularly they were pretty great i mean honestly that they were unbelievably supportive the house yeah, I mean, family. it's amazing to have um, the ability to kind of use the entire space, really, and remove things, because especially with furniture so old and expensive, oh, um, I'm sure yeah. it was quite a battle at points. It was, it, there was a lot of negotiation. I think in many ways, the kind of trickiest part of it was we had to be so organised, you know, like normally you can go into a place and go, oh, actually, it'd be really great if we could borrow that chair, or it'd be great if we did this, or, you know, and but this required, like I remember, every single thing that was in that house was itemized, and Alice and I had to walk around and ask, like, right, remove, 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 you know, and and then keep, you know, because they had some lovely tables and bits and pieces that we wanted to keep, but the vast majority left, and that required specialist furniture removal, like it required, um, like a temperature controlled. Um, you know, like shipping container to be put on site, you know, because there was so much stuff that was taken out. And then, yeah, like we did construction in amongst that. And of course the construction, the, you know, the carpenters couldn't touch the wall. So everything was just wedged and, you know, had to be painted off site and then, you know, matched. And so it was, it was quite slow because it had to be so done in such a sort of a, a painstaking way so that we didn't have any dramas but I mean once we got going and I think that the house realized that we 
hugely respectful. I mean, I just, you know, I can't believe my luck working in places like that, you know. And I wanted to honour that building as well, like with all the stuff that, all the, the, the walls that I built and the bits and pieces. They're all, you know, I just took their, what was there and I did my version of it so that it felt very, very whole. Um, I think once they realised that was our attitude, they were very supportive and happy, you know, they relaxed. Yeah. So it's often kind of like a bit of a dance between art and production in terms of budgeting, especially with things like removing artwork and stuff, which can seem like a, a made up cost or something that's um, could be anything. Yeah. How, how do yeah. you, um, I mean, obviously they would be aware that these are real things, but how do you go about fighting that battle and kind of like, you know, like putting your foot down and demanding that you need certain amounts to, to allow things to happen? Well, I have excellent people who do that. <laughs> so that, that Lynn Hewitson and okay. Alice Felton probably Amazing. had those conversations, whereas yeah. I, I was oblivious. I, was, I wouldn't be oblivious, but they were having those conversations. Plus we had a fantastic line producer, Coach Collins, who was great and, like, you know, she, was, she could see what was going on and what was needed and, yeah. So um, moving on to a slightly different aspect, um, animals. You had some wonderful rabbits and some geese <laughs> and quite possibly some other animals, but they're the main ones I can remember. Yeah. And they're running yeah. rampant all over the house. Mm. Um, how do you defend the house against such um, crazy beasts? Well, we had, um, like in the case of the rabbits, they, we had lots of rabbit minders. So if there was a take... You know, like if something needed to be cleaned up, it was pretty quickly cleaned up. And also, like I said, we didn't have carpets, which is a good thing. So like everybody, everything could just be wiped up. But also um, like Alice hid like sort of absorbable, absorbent pads and things into bedding. And so there were sort of things like that. But I mean, you can't, you know, you just never know what's going to happen with, with rabbits and ducks and so, um, yeah, it was just, we, like I say, there were just always people, lots of people there to make sure that everything was managed. I mean, the candles were more of a rogue thing, like then, you know, just managing candle wax was more intense than um, rabbits. Did you find you had to, um, I guess, you wouldn't really be able to get away with hiding trays to kind of catch the wax. So were you having to only put candles on things that you'd hired or purchased? Like, how did you get around? Yeah, and we made, well, we, and we had, um, we made actually a lot of velvet, like sort of table runners and they were really tonal. So they, on, on like a really nice sort of, a nice waxed wood. Actually, you don't really notice this velvet. And so, cause it was the chocolate colored velvet and we did things like that so that you don't, they sort of drop away. Um, and then if we had something that we didn't, we weren't worried about, then that was fine. We didn't need to cover. It was more the floor, like making sure that, you know, everybody was on top of like wax management so that there wasn't a problem with, there was no, I mean, there wasn't any damage to the floor. It was fine. But, you know, like I say, there was just a constant kind of, you know, just that was a concern always. And plus, plus like burning the house down because there were lots of very intense protocols around. I mean, that's the thing, like a lot of these houses, you can't use open flame. You can't have candles. So they, they have very strict, um, 
you know, like checking of, of each room and making sure that there's absolutely no, nothing that can happen in the middle of the night, you know, type thing. With Hatfield House, um, what made Hatfield House different in terms of allowing the candles? Was it just... Uh... It's just their, their, they have um, their systems and their rules and that they are open to it, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah there must yeah, be yeah. very few of those, I can imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah there are. Oh, wicked. Um, yeah, I guess um, continuing on with the candles, like um, mm-hmm. the whole film itself is, is, I believe, done with natural lighting and candles. Um, how does that work in terms of you and the DP in terms of constructing the, the look of lighting? How did it work with Robbie? Robbie just really just kept asking for more. <laughs> like he just wanted lots, as many candles as we could justifiably fit. And I was really... I really wanted there to be um, like a, a, I guess, a a plan. You know, I didn't want it to ever look chaotic. So we would be very symmetrical with our arrangements of candles. And and then I did things like we had in the Queen's bedroom, we had huge mirrors and we had silky fabrics and, and fabrics that picked you know, kicked light around a little bit. We had a lot of open fires. We had the polished wood, a lot of, you know, marble. So I tried to think of things that not only felt right because they were quite hard, you know, I thought that was nice. It, it wasn't all plush, but they're actually shiny hard surfaces. But also that was great because it was kicking light and playing light around the room. Yeah. Moving on to Macbeth, that's got kind of, it's, it's a period film, but it's got kind of quite an expressive look overall. Um, how did you and Justin kind of collaborate on that that kind of process of coming up with the look? Uh, the big, the, one of the, de- <laughs> the really defining things about Macbeth was that Justin very much wanted it to be a period film, and he, when when I first started, I remember on it, he was like, "I want it to be completely accurate." And I was like, oh, amazing, you know. And I was living, I was in Australia, and I was like, amazing. I'm sure it can be accurate. And then um, we, so I started doing lots of research and, uh, you know, understanding that I, the way that villages are laid out and the way that there's a long house and various other things and looking at the period and all that. Um, and through that process, we, re- and, you know, I was sort of designing a little bit and then, of course, it was budgeted and it became apparent that there was absolutely no way <laughs> that we could <laughs> authentically cre- recreate that period and a village or you know castles and any of but also what we what released us actually was the realization through our research that that Shakespeare didn't it wasn't written in the period it was written um after so the way that it's the the kind of stage directions and the way that he's talking about the castles actually wasn't accurate for the time. So then we were like, oh, okay. So it's it has its own immediate sort of um, it, it's already departed. So now we will depart, you know, as well. And so for us, we the big thing was that we decided to um, introduce the idea that. Inverness was like a refugee village so that there are a lot of people living in tents and it's sort of kind of temporary like a like a village that's sprung up because people are without um you know a permanent home which is it felt right for the the amount of like the wars that had been going on and so we sort of made our own sort of logic which 
is something that we got trained to do at theatre school. Like you can justify anything. So, um, and it just, it gave us freedom to make our own language. Yeah. And what was your kind of your cornerstone, your backbone for the, for the kind of the key design of that area? Was there a specific reference that you were looking at or where did you begin? I just remember we were looking at all sorts of things. I mean, we were looking at, I mean, Justin wanted it to look like a Western. So it was a lot of sort of photography of like homesteads that were quite isolated. And, but then we were looking at, um, I remember like amazing, there was a beautiful Bulgarian church that I loved that was the reference for the church that's, you know, the chapel. And so we were just looking at loads of different things that, that hung together. I mean, the thing that I love about the film is I love the, the palette shift that, you know, we go from this kind of very grey, blue um, world of Inverness and then into the gold, that we get this very golden hue when we get um, to Dunsinane. And I just remember, I, I thought that was very special and we were really informed a lot by where we were, our location, not just in Scotland, but we were also shooting at Hankley Common in Surrey. And that had these wonderful woods with bracken and, you know, and like I say, as an Australian who had not really spent much time in this country, I mean, I just was so, I love the colours, like the rusty colours. And so I was just drinking it all up and just throwing it around the movie, you know, because for me it was fascinating. And, you know, I remember looking at a lot of um, research around witchcraft, witch, witches and, you know, um, kind of totemic things. And so we were putting a lot of that into the details and, um, yeah, yeah. So have you found the move, I'm, I'm guessing you're now UK based, right? Mm. Um, have you found yeah. the move from kind of the Australian art department and industry to the British kind of slash frequently American industry? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so the thing that was sort of interesting about my career was that I only made one movie in Australia and then my second movie was in Europe my third project was in New Zealand and then I went back to Australia. And so I've always kind of, I've only ever made three movies in Australia. Like the majority of my work's actually been, even when I was based in Australia, I made two movies here. So I feel um, there are certainly differences in with the Australian industry, but I never worked on anything big there. Like I wasn't ever, so I, I actually don't know what it's like. <laughs> So you designed one of my favourite music videos of, of that year, which was FK Twix's Cellophane by the fantastic Andrew Thomas Wang. Um, tell me about that. Like he's, they're quite a, they've got kind of quite a strong look in all of their projects. Like how did you go about kind of, what was the collaboration process like? Uh, Andy had a really clear vision for what, for the, the arc in terms of, you know, he had, yeah, very, very clear so um, from memory, he'd done quite a lot of work in sort of animatics. He's very, very good at, you know, um, post-production and, you know, animation and things like that. And so, um, so what we just did was we just talked about, you know, the scale and the feel and, you know, uh, you know, referenced. I remember referencing mud pools and caves and we were talking about, these kind of pearls, you know, like these kind of muddy, yeah, just the kind, so just really what is the move? And um, 
And we made that, we shot that in Kiev. And so there was, it was quite quick, you know, like I remember it being a quick process. Like I remember fiddling around and drawing things and he was drawing things and we were doing that remotely because he was in Los Angeles and I was in London. And, and then that was all being fed over to um, Kiev. And so when I arrived, I remember the mud pool was built and then it was just really a matter of like making that amazing curtain, mm. like massive, double-layered, incredible curtain, and getting that beautiful color. And it was stunning. Yeah, I don't know. It was all kind of like just happened. I mean, it like they just had everything. It was brilliant. <laughs> like they were great. Like there was such a great bunch of people, and they were so tireless. And I loved it because I loved making things. So I just sat there on the side, like rolling mud balls and mm. you know putting them into the mud pool and it was yeah it was really fast I mean I think we shot it in we did two two days of shooting but I just remember only being there for five or something it was quick I mean we worked a million hours but it was <laughs> it was great yeah, yeah I mean the color of that red mud is just phenomenal it's um it's super yeah cool. what, yeah what, do you remember what kind of was it just mud that had been clay. dyed or just no, no, it was clay. Amazing. It was just a, like a, a terracotta kind of clay. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. great. And so, <laughs> you know, as well as features and music videos, as we've discussed, you've also worked in commercials quite a lot. Like, mm. how do you find the shift back from features into the kind of the sprint of commercials? Um, I, it always takes a little minute. I mean, I, I love, I actually do really like commercials because I... I credit commercials with how I learned how to do my job really, because I, I had to, I mean, honestly, I had no idea. Like, I mean, like I said, I come from the film industry background, but my, with my family, but I didn't know how to, like, I was able to experiment and understand, um, you know, how, how a camera works and, or, you know, like what, what does it look like when you move something in front of a camera? Like what happens with certain colors and things like that? I mean, I don't know. I just, I feel like my training, um, was very much on commercial sets. And so, um, sorry, build is left. <laughs> um, yeah, there they go. But, um, so I, I think the hardest thing for me with going back into commercials is often just finding a, a crew, you know, like having people that you can, because I don't do it back to back. I have to kind of scratch around and try to find people, which I don't enjoy. Like that's the hardest part of my job or not the hardest part, but one of the things I just, I don't like doing is feeling worried about how I'm going to pull something off, you know, because I don't have a team. Um, that's often the anxiety with commercials, but I actually really love commercials. I've, I've done some really, you know, some of them are unbelievably awful and arduous. Um, and a lot of them have been wonderful. You know, I mean, I did a Chanel job with Steve McQueen and Bradford Young. Amazing. Like, I mean, it was heaven. I just sat there and listened to the two of them and just was like, <laughs> I can't believe my luck. <laughs> like, you know, it was great. Yeah, it's super yeah. cool. And, and you're right, it has been incredibly difficult to find crew, especially over the past yeah. kind of two years. And with so many yeah. people being kind of sucked up into high-end TV and features. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of crew, like, and particularly assistants, um, what do you look for in an assistant? And, like, what kind of characteristics will probably get them a second job with you, potentially? Um, I, I think, you know, 
diligence and tenacity and being, um, you know, I'm a great believer that, you know, the job isn't done until we turn over. So like every single person is welcome to offer an opinion or come up with an idea. And I just love, I mean, I, you know, it's a collaboration. And um, so I, I like for people to be confident enough to say, you know, I was just thinking of this or this reminded me of that or whatever. Like I, I love conversation. Um, and so, yeah, that's the kind of thing because it also means that there's a kind of, a, you know, people are looking and that they're interested and invested. And, and um, I mean, I really like to, you know, it's such a huge thing as anybody who works in the industry knows, like the hours are crazy and we all give so much of our time and ourselves into it that I want to enjoy it. I want to be with people who are going to be fun, frankly, like, you know, <laughs> going to have a laugh and are going to just not have a problem with having a cup of tea. And like, you know, like I, I like everybody to take pleasure and have a good time and, you know, like have cakes and I don't know, like it just, we've got to enjoy it. So I like it when I'm surrounded by people that we can have a bit of a laugh and, you know, kind of, yeah, bounce stuff off each other. And yeah, that's probably like probably what it is. I think it's important, especially when, you know, it's like crazy o'clock at night and you're still, I don't know, putting up, shelves or some kind of like crazy yeah. thing in the basement like having someone yeah. next to you who you don't mind chatting to is um oh, definitely yeah. a pleasure yeah but also I think you know to for everybody to I mean one thing that I I <laughs> I can't stand is when I know people are just staying staying at work because I'm there mm. you know and I just you know people sort of feeling like they've got to show that they're doing a great job and it's like you are doing a great job. You are really good at your job because you're here, you know? Yeah. So, and it, you don't have to, you know, it shouldn't be something where people kind of feel like they have to be anything other than they are. So, you know, like I want people to think it's okay to leave to do yoga or like, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and then so that when it is required that they stay because something has to happen, then we're all good to do it. You know, like I, I just, at, at the end of the day, I, yeah, like I say, I just want to enjoy everybody's company, make sure everyone's in a good place. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important, especially the kind mm. of the mental health care side of things, because yeah. it can be quite um, brutal and there can be some kind of nasty people out there. So it's quite important to try and like, you know, protect your team as much as possible, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, moving kind of like backwards into features, um, I've read that you're kind of very into details and you're quite into kind of showing as much details as possible with the director. Like, how do you navigate um, some directors that might be interested in that and others who just want you to get on with it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, how, yeah. Do you, how do you approach that? Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, my theory is I try to make sure that nothing is as much as possible, this is not always possible, but as much as possible, there should never be a surprise. So I will make a point that if we've dressed a set and there's no way that the director will be on that set before the shooting, then they will receive photos from me. And then it's up to them if they look at those photos, <laughs> you know. And so I always make a point of sending things through in exactly the same way I will, Alice and I will always 
do dressing plans. We will always share them or attempt to share them. Um, it doesn't always work because I've worked with numerous directors who really actually don't, in effect, clock in until they're standing on the set. So then suddenly it's like, oh no, but like the sofa has to be over here or he's coming through that door. And you're just like, okay, because good. But we, you know, we did discuss whatever, but it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what was discussed. And so I might, but I will just always try to avoid that as much as possible just because it puts people under pressure and it just creates, you know, no one likes that feeling of scrambling. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, <laughs> Craig, I don't feel Craig Gillespie really wanted to look at every single fabric swatch, <laughs> but <laughs> we would sometimes like corner him in a room and he just thought, I mean, he has such, he's got great humor. So he just thought the whole thing was quite amusing that he was always like lured into set deck to look at, you know, <laughs> I don't know, a trim, yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, he, he was, um, I mean, he obviously saw all the models and the plans and everything and was, and also walked, I always try to get them to walk everything like as things are being built. So, so that there's a, you know, cause I, I think it's very hard for people to understand on a drawing, even a model box, what it is to then when, once it's actually, you know, and I've made mistakes where I've built sets, you know, where I felt that they were you know, one or two meters too big or whatever, and you know, like you need to modify. You can't tell that from a drawing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, so with the favorite, you won a BAFTA, which is fantastic. How did you, mm. how did that, how did that affect your career, so to speak? Like, did you find new doors are opening up and, and what was the result? Yeah. Um, I think that the BAFTA, but also the Oscar nomination, course, were, yeah. they were very, they really just opened doors. They really, they really did. And I think it's partly because suddenly people are seeing your work, um, you know, like in terms of it's on people's, it, you know, it's a conversation people are having around that particular film. Um, but also, I don't know, like there's some kind of weird, like suddenly you get trusted. <laughs> like, like you sort of have, you're anointed or something in an interesting way. Um, and so I, I had, ha, I'd been spoken to about Cruella some years before, actually. Um, but it was very vague. But then the minute that things started to happen with uh, The Favourite, and I think it was after the Oscar nomination, actually, like I was in the room. Like, you know, I was suddenly, there was something that I was just felt like it was all just, I don't know, just suddenly changed that. And then, of course, once you do a film of that scale, then that opens mm. other doors. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to pretend it hasn't had an impact. It's had a significant impact. Yeah. Well, that's, that's yeah. fantastic news. Mm. And so from Cruella, um, did you, was the plan to then continue doing big scale projects or like, or what was your thought? Did you kind of want to mix things up no. a bit more? I absolutely, I wanted to mix it up. I, I mean, my big thing, I think anyway, is that I don't want to be remotely one note mm. um, in my career. And and I, 
And I can see how that can happen. You know, like it's, I mean, even after Macbeth, I remember after Macbeth, I would suddenly, I kept getting Viking movies, even though that's not a Viking movie. <laughs> but, you know, you sort of, and it's like after Snowtown, I was getting loads of like dark, you know, naturalistic. So it sort of happens that people go, oh, you know, I've seen that she can do this. So let's offer more of that. And so I've always tried to find things that might throw that off a little bit. And um, so my plan, yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I actually went to Kiev and did a little project with a friend of mine, but it just didn't, uh, it got shut down because of COVID. So actually I did a tiny little thing that never saw the light of day and then came back to the UK and then, yeah, was uh, approached about um, Disappointment Boulevard. And so that's a 30 million from memory and something like that or 25 million. And so that's a, you know, significant like change in budget, but enough money for the movie. And um, it's contemporary. And so it's, it was a change of pace. So um, that's the new film with Ari Aster that I'm sure we can't yeah. talk about in detail. But how is working with um, him as a director? What was that like? Um, Ari is very, very interested in design. He absolutely loves uh, talking about it. We did a very long, I, from memory, I was offered that job in December. And um, I think we started actually in something like April. April, yeah. But we were meeting like twice weekly for months just really doing, we did a huge amount of prep, um, pre-prep, just talking it through because it's a really, <laughs> it's a very complicated film, very complex, not just in terms of practically like what had to happen and be built and made, but just very narratively complex, like what is the story? And so nutting that out and working out how it could all, you know, what it all meant for the design was really fascinating. So he's, yeah, he's very, um, he loves all that. He loves it. Yeah. And he's also, he's, he's storyboards and he's, he's very prepared. He knows exactly how he wants something to play. He, he can tell you how many seconds it's going to take for somebody to walk from A to B. He knows all that already. And so that meant for me creating environments that allowed for that, for him to have these. Because he's so, he's extremely funny. Like his comedy is incredible. Um, and so it's very finely balanced how he's getting somebody to do something to then look over here and get this. And, you know, so it's all, so at my job, part of my job was, allowing for that to happen for him um yeah so thanks so much for coming on the show and um it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me the show's intro was composed by sam mcgrail mixed by max bloom and the artwork was created by alec jagodzinski